Welcome to Fried Friday. I'm Dennis Lipchak. And I'm Adam Spitz. And we have a very special guest with us today, Dashiell. <laughs> I like that we got the, the long Dashiell, otherwise known as Dash, right, guys? Yeah. Dash. And uh, Dash is our first real chef on the podcast. Hey, so I represent he, that statement. Yeah. Yeah, he went to culinary school and um, he's worked in the industry for a while. We worked together and we've gone to a lot of um, industry shows. Is that what you call those? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better term. Absolutely. Well, hey guys, thanks for having me. This is uh, it's a pleasure to do a podcast with you guys and really just more fun to just catch up, man. I feel like it's been forever since we've uh, chatted and kind of, especially in this type of atmosphere, right? We get to talk business and have fun. That's what we strive on. Dennis or Dashiell, actually, let's start with you. Do you want to give us a little bit of your background? I mean, Dennis alluded to the fact that obviously you're a chef and you have a lot of experience in the restaurant industry. Do you want to provide maybe perhaps a little bit more information about what you do, what you're what you're currently working on and all that information? Well, let's let's not let's not jump into the business end. This fast, um, I think uh, Dennis wants to take it slow, guys. Wants to uh, tell us about um, so, some of the famous dishes you have prepared at the lab. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> like for an example, how do you fry a pie? Like back in the good good old McDonald's days before um, they started this, baking them. This is a great intro. So uh, you know. The Fried Friday is synonymous with working at the food service tech center, right? I mean, that, that was like our ultimate day where we just kind of threw everything at those things and see what would happen. But, um, you know, one, one of the uh, ASTM test methods was with pies for rack ovens. And one day I was just sitting in front of an 85-pound fryer and I was like, this thing is meant for glory. So I decided to kind of jury rig or, or whatever you want to call it, a, this metal cage and I figured out how to fry entire apple pies at once. <laughs> it was a full-on MacGyver moment. Um, it didn't really come out as glorious as I was expecting, but nonetheless, it was fun, and it didn't explode in my face, so we're good. So how do you keep the fry from oh, – sorry, the pie from floating up? So uh, imagine like a submersible caged submarine <laughs> You put the whole pie in and uh, we twist tied it together and it had a, a pretty solid amount of weight and it just, it held the pie uh, submerged in the oil. Cage submarine. That is a new cooking test, uh, like method of cooking that I've never heard of, but submerged I, yeah. submarine. <laughs> I think of like, you know, like people diving with great white sharks or something, you know, sitting in one of those cages, <laughs> just chumming the water. <laughs> no chum included though. No, absolutely not. I, the pie did chum the oil a little bit. It was uh, it was an absolute mess, but good time. It sounds yeah. lovely. I, I remember there was a point where we tried to fry a pizza, and <laughs> the dough just absorbed all the oil. Oil, no, yeah. It was it was uh, not for the intestines. <laughs> not for <laughs> intestines dash you're giving us a lot of material here to go off on but <laughs> sticking to point uh, we won't digress that far off um 
So intestinal issues, the, we'll, we'll go ahead and put those to the side. Uh, Dennis, though, I think you had uh, some specific questions for Dashiell. Oh, I thought you said some specific intestinal issues, but. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that. So, Dashiell, um, going back to Adam's question, um, can you give us a little bit more background about um, culinary school and what do you do now? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started in the culinary field real young, uh, 12 years old. I was a, a fresh graduate of the Edible Schoolyard, which was, you know, the, the Berkeley hippy dippy garden where they taught kids, you know, uh, farm to fork originally. And uh, kind of you know, went to culinary school at the ripe young age of 17 got into the restaurant biz and realized that I, I liked having a life and, you know, uh, wanted to protect my liver. So I, <laughs> I, I explored other options, went to go work for PG&E, uh, representing the energy efficiency programs and the myriad of, of all of those, of, including HVAC and food service and lighting and all that. In fact, it's funny, I, I had a shower thought today of CFLs and what the heck happened to those things, right? Um, remember we did the million CFL giveaway with PG&E. That was, that was a blast. Um, mm. So anyway, uh, you know, that path led me to working at the food service tech center, uh, where I met you two fine gentlemen and, uh, probably the pinnacle of my career where I, I think I probably absorbed the most information. I was, you know, chefy, Mr. Salesman jumping into a group of engineers and come to find out engineers have way more personality than, <laughs> than prescribed. Right. Uh, <laughs> we had a great time there and, uh, I went to go become a manufacturer's representative represented what I thought were, you know, 20 of some of the top lines in the industry. And from there, I'm now the regional sales manager for one of the major combi manufacturers uh, in the world. So I work the Northern California territory and, uh, you know, I, I'm just at it every single day, pushing the good mantra of energy efficiency and uh, good equipment. Good stuff, man. That's awesome, Dashiell. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, we look over to you guys as a professionally trained chef, and we just absolutely are kind of in tears almost of jealousy. Uh, what you guys do, you have an experience that, you know, Dennis and I don't, we're not chefs. Like we, we, we can make a you know, a thing here and there, but we're not doing what you've accomplished. And so it's so cool to have somebody like you, you know, on both sides of the fence there um, with the technology, recognizing whatever it is that can be done with a piece of equipment. And you've transformed your professional role into you know, something that is like on the sales side and the marketing side and, and really promoting energy efficiency. It's, it's all very cool. Well, and, and, you know, it really, for me is just about how the rubber meets the road. Right. So it's like, uh, all the efficiency and rebates and theory and all that, how do you bring it to layman's terms to a chef where they really recognize, you know, where's the value and benefit in all these things that we talk about, right? Not just rebate dollars, but actual tangible results where we're working with equipment that makes our lives better and easier. Right, right. And you're good at expressing that message. 
I, I've gotten I've gotten pretty good at it, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I've certainly fumbled and uh, and overpromised and underdelivered, uh, which I'll never do again. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I will. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's fun, man. And, and this job has really brought me uh, into some cool kitchens and meet some really incredible chefs. And what, what's really cool is we're starting to see the change of guard, right? It's like there's so many young and hip upcoming chefs that they get so much of their knowledge, not only from culinary school and, you know, on the job training, but through Instagram and, you know, podcasts and YouTube. And I mean, we've got these like budding food scientists that 30 years ago, which just would have been your normal line chef, right? But they're, they're making, you know, kojis and strange fermentation labs in their closets. And it's just really cool to witness. Yeah, that's right on. And you said the, the, the term unhip, where, where did the hipness come into uh you know extinction uh as far as like unhip you're saying it being like line chef or what <laughs> yeah yeah you said that they would be unhip and and, and oh i mean know. i mean there's there's no like uh I, I would say that the guy who's flipping pancakes back in the day the, the sex appeal wasn't there but fast forward to these days that same guy can be doing all kinds of cool instagrammable you know photographs and really you know outside of the box thinking and all of a sudden you know they're they're the cool guy on the block versus just this this kitchen uh troll living behind this door <laughs> okay <laughs> that definitely <laughs> clarifies it <laughs> some truffle pancakes infused with aioli exactly with like yeah a strawberry yeah. gastrique exactly <laughs> no more kitchen trolls very good so we know how much experience you have and we're not going to ask you easy questions. Obviously, you expected to, to come here and tell us about combi ovens, but we know a lot about combi ovens, or we think we know a lot about combi ovens. So we're going to ask you about some more, should I say, eclectic pieces of equipment. All right. I like it. So, some pieces of equipment you may see in a more production kitchen or even a lunchroom. So today we're going to talk about braising pans, tilt skillets, steamers, and steam kettles. Otherwise known as kitchen bathtubs. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Get that, get that so tub in there. To start off, uh, we'll, we'll ask you a semi-culinary question. What is braising and what, what happens there, maybe chemically or temperature-wise? So the process of braising is using uh, a liquid, right, to to cook and tenderize a food product. And that could be, you know, proteins, it can be vegetables or whatever. But typically in the braise process, there's a sear that happens. You add a liquid and then you cook low and slow so that you start breaking down some of the, the sinew or, or tougher parts of the food product. O over time, it's not like immediate reaction right dash it's yeah it's more of a process than a simple there it is boom one and done kind of scenario absolutely yeah it's not like you you throw in the microwave for a minute and it comes out yeah we're, we're talking long arduous processes typically to to get the final result you're looking for so, so the the searing process um what temperature is that done at and um, what kind of surfaces does the food need to come in contact with well, so see, that's uh, that's an interesting question, right? Because uh, there's contact 
cooking, obviously, right? So there's the tilt skillets and, and braising pans where you're searing with that. But even in combis, we can sear with just hot air, right? But I would say uh, anything that's above 375 degrees is typically going to give you a nice golden brown sear. Uh, what we're looking for is just the the really nice Maillard reaction, right? That Just that level of browning. So yeah, any anything around 375 or above. And then you would add your liquids and typically braise uh, anywhere from 180 to even 220 degrees if you have super, super heated steam. And, and the searing process, it seals in the juices or you're trying to extract a little bit more flavor from the outside? Uh, both. So you can either, you're doing it one for extracting flavor. So you get something called fond on the bottom of the pan and that's where you would deglaze and get some of those nice little uh, meaty morsels, right? But you're also trying to trap in and seal in some of the flavor into the meat itself. And it's also, you know, an addition of texture. Mm-hmm. So what would be some typical dishes you would use um, freezing pan for? So uh, that's funny. I think, and I'm, I'm going to digress a little bit here, but uh, you know, I, I think the old cookbook that we had for braising pans was like a military cookbook. And some of the stuff they had in there for cooking braising pans was like bizarre, like baking cornbread or something. Right. But for me, when I, when my standard thought is like a really beautifully cooked, reduced, like, beef short rib over like polenta, right? With like a nice juicy gravy type red wine reduction. Um, I would also say like a chicken curry or even you could, you know, I mean, we're talking like real braising, but I would also use it for large batch, you know, pasta boiling or something. And so for, for those dishes that you described, I assume that the searing process is going to be maybe 10 minutes or so. And then how long is the actual low and slow process? So, you know, that's a, it's a very subjective question. Uh, it depends on, on what it is, right? Uh, I would say typically the sear is anywhere from, you know, two minutes to 15 minutes, depending on how golden and dark colored you want your, your, you know, fond in the pan. And then I would say a typical braise is going to be around 45 minutes or longer, depending on the food product. But I mean, you could braise from, you know, 45 minutes all the way to 24 hours, right? 24 hours. That seems like an excessive amount of time. What would you be preparing that takes that long? You know, it depends on what temp, right? So there's there's different different uh, chemical processes that happen when cooking at lower temps to higher temps. So it may be that you're trying to do an introduction of heat into the food product as slow as possible. So you get a higher yield or even, you know, more of a flavor transfer. But I, I guess to, to answer your question, what would be like an example of that? I mean, you could you could do like a a low temp braise on a big protein, honestly, like like a a huge like brisket, and you're looking at anywhere from sixteen to twenty four hours at a, at a really really low temperature. So you break down uh, you know the, the cartilage and the sinew at a much slower rate, and the fat also melts through the the food uh, at a slower rate. So you just get a juicier final product. So if we're, you're talking about like all the different applications for this particular type of equipment, would there be, and I think this has been up for deliberation for quite some time on the, you know, ASTM testing committee, what is the optimal food product to reflect the energy performance on something like a braising pan? Oh, here's the, the loaded question, huh? 
Um, <laughs> did I prematurely uh, introduce <laughs> that? I, 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 if I did, I'm sorry, but that's top of mind for me. No, no, absolutely. I get it. I mean, and that's, that's kind of the, that's the difficulty in what we do, right? Is, is finding a, a standardized product that can be found around the world and can be duplicated over and over. And, you know, the three, three tests average and all that fun stuff. Right. So, I mean, I, I think a water boil test with red potatoes is still a pretty good darn test than using a protein because you know what the, you know, what the content's going to be, what the, the rise uh, of, you know, water temperature is going to be in relation to the actual uh, heat energy coming off the product. Um, Cause at the end of the day, we're just creating energy, right. That's supposed to get transferred to the food. And so I think you muddy the waters when you, especially in this application, when you do anything that's, that's got fats and, you know, high fat content or even wine that can be, you know, have a ton of different variables. Okay. So but if, you, but if you, but if you ask me, I would say, let's go <laughs> red wine, beef, short rib braised. Right. But that's, that's not realistic. We would have, I, I would say probably like a, like a red potato test. Okay. So your answer is as a chef versus as an analyst, very different. You know, this is, this is true, <laughs> but this, but this is, but this is why I, you know, I'm in the role that I'm in. Right. I don't think a chef necessarily understands the heat energy and, and the actual, you know, thermal transfer from the energy you paid for into the food product and the, and the final result. Right. They just, mm -hmm. they just see something that just cooks good food and move on. Right. But as, as an energy analyst or an engineer, you have to, you have to fill in the blanks and, and kind of coax them in the right direction. So that's why having him known or seen both sides, I, I, I think uh, the red potato test is probably the best option. Mm-hmm. It's consistent with others. Um, Dennis, what are your thoughts on that? As an engineer, it's it's probably fine. But how are you going to do the the searing part? How are you going to imitate that part? Yeah, well, I guess you could also do the burger test, right? I mean, you just you, you put the, the thermocouples tack welded to the metal surface. That's going to measure, you know, how how quickly the heat drops and recovers. Because I mean, in its in its function, a brazing pan, it, you know, is kind of a Swiss Army knife, like a combi, right? The whole point is to do multiple different styles of cooking in a single piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. So, as far as um, temperatures and functionality, brazing pans should be able to get up to at least three hundred fifty degrees, probably four hundred. To as far as bigger. as far as the the surface temperature. Yeah. I mean, I, the one that I'm, you know, most well-versed on right now is the Ivario product. And I mean, that gets upwards of, you know, 575 degrees, but it, in, in my humble opinion, I think anything, uh, anywhere above 400 to 450 degrees would be, you know, a pretty good window of what's happening on the griddle surface or the metal cooking surface. The brazing pan you're talking about, uh, probably has controls that can then do a simmer, but what a typical run of the mill brazing pan have temperature controls you can manually turn down, um, to, to do the, the brazing part. I mean, it should. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that would be the goal, right? You should have some sort of thermostat that's controlling the temperature. I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not cooking over fire here, right? We're trying to create modern cooking technologies, even though. Let me tell you, I am always thoroughly impressed when somebody cooks a steak over a campfire. <laughs> well, 
Well, that actually uh, kind of folds into a question that I had for you, Dash, is um, are, are you typically seeing these electric only or is there a combination of gas, uh, natural gas fueled uh, as the primary he- heating element um, or heating source rather uh, yeah. for these types of brazing pans? If you asked me two years ago, I would say gas. But as it stands today, what's being specified in is, I would say, probably 80% electric. Mm. Is that geographically centric or is it just generally speaking, that's what's on the market? Yeah, I mean, I would say geographically, you know, that, that's being driven by California uh, standards, right? With the electrification standards that are happening. But um, it's definitely rolling out everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you're seeing more electric. Okay. I mean, that's interesting for us to know. I mean, not that one is more achievable to do the same job as the other. Um, well, I mean, electric electric is far, far more efficient. Well, that's efficiency, yeah, on the side there. Uh, but they can essentially, I mean, they can achieve temperature. They can do the same job, essentially. That, yeah, that's that's true. That, but I, I would say the electric is probably from from what I've witnessed and worked on is is a heck of a lot more consistent and has less recovery time than a gas unit. More consistent. Okay, that's interesting feedback. What about um, the the tilting mechanism and the? I mean, does a brazing pan by definition does it need to be able to tilt? Um. I would say yes. I mean, there are fixed ones that just have, you know, what they call like a a dairy valve in the end and you just have to clean it out manually. But personally, you know, I think that all brazing pans should have some sort of tilt function. Yes. But that's only like beneficial if you have a liquid substance or product that you're preparing, right? Like if you're doing, if you're doing grilled cheese sandwiches or I don't know, hamburgers or whatever, uh, something that doesn't require a tilt, hmm, it's not really necessary. So it kind of depends on the menu, right? Dash super, super contingent on the menu. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I've noticed is that raising pans are usually in very large kitchens where there's a piece of equipment to do each task. And I would say a raising pan kitchen would probably have griddles, ovens, and Sometimes I've noticed that a big kitchen has a brazing pan, but it's not being used. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, I think that's actually changing though. I mean, I, with these things are starting to get introduced to the the general market a heck of a lot more. And then, you know, again, speaking to the products that I know, I mean, we, we make a unit that's side by side, four and a half gallons on each side, and it's getting specified by small mom and pops where, you know, classically they wouldn't even be considering that. So that that's actually a really good question. And so what sort of compensates for whatever the brazing pan can't do? What would you recommend as a professional food service operator, uh, consultant, rep? What would you suggest to compensate for whatever a brazing pan can't do, cannot do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you... I, I mean, I, I wouldn't just put a brazing pan and call it a day. Here's your kitchen. <laughs> Ta-da, right? I mean, you have to have some sort of heat source, uh, like an induction burner or, you know, or even an open flame. 
but also, you know, some sort of convection oven, some, something that convection oven or combi oven, let me say, um, something that, that can do large batches of products at the same time, right? Uh, I would say a braising pan really is limiting because you can only do like one style of product at a time. Mm-hmm. And what about holding? Because braising pans can't actually hold a product to maintain quality, unless I'm incorrect on that. I... Well, yeah, I mean they they can for sure. I mean, but they it, can. It, okay. Yeah, but I I feel like I almost have the cheat code right, and and I'm really, <laughs> we didn't really discuss product promotion or anything, which I, I think is probably a no no. But uh, the product that I'm most familiar with, I mean, yeah, we we have intelligent cooking features that once the food is cooked, it can go right into a hold mode and hold for, you know, 24 hours, literally. So then we're talking about cook and hold ovens, not. No, no. I'm talking about the. the Are you talking I, about braising pans? Yeah. I'm talking about the Ivario braising pan, the rationale unit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very nice. So even though it's not covered, it can still function as a holding is vessel. It, it, it is covered though. I mean, this one has a lid to it, and there's also a pressure co- uh, cooking function. Oh, very nice. Okay. Well, my apologies for the ignorance there. Oh no, no, it's. Fine. I mean, I'm just. I, I. The only thing I can speak to right now is what I'm most well versed with. But I guess. Oh yeah, of course. So like yeah. I said, that's why I feel like I have the cheat code, right? Because I, I think it, you know we've, we've got one of the best products in the market. But there's other ones that are just you know standard uh, rectangular metal squares with a lid that I still think you could achieve some sort of holding in. Yeah, see, that's what I was thinking of, but not with the lid, like just keeping it open. And I just don't know if I've ever seen a braising pan without a lid. You would know better than I would. Yeah, I mean kettles, <laughs> kettles. I see kettles. But, sure, yeah, but I, uh-huh. but I just, I just wouldn't classify a kettle with a braising pan, right? That's a totally different cooking mm-hmm. technology. Maybe that's a good segue into kettles, though. Um, what's the what's the difference there so i would say uh a kettle is like a big cauldron right so what would you do in in a cauldron you would you would boil products and and anything in between right so i would use a a kettle for making soups stocks uh even boiling off products and i think if you really tried hard enough you could probably even do some sort of like a risotto product but it i wouldn't use it for any sort of browning searing um or long, and you you know what you could do a braise function in it, but it just you would have to brown everything off ahead of time. It's really just meant to be two hundred and twelve degrees or below. Okay, yeah. What kind of facilities do you usually see having those? Um, is it production kitchens that make a lot of soup or stock? Yeah, large, lar- hu- huge, large production kitchens. I mean. School food service, uh, large BNI. Uh, even though I think BNI is kind of moving away from that, and by BNI I mean business and industry. Sorry, I, sometimes you throw acronyms out there and don't know people know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I would say, you know, um, you know, prisons and, and military. Military, absolutely, yeah, and and casinos. I mean, I I, I bet mm. you the casino market's probably number one for kettles uh, historically. Would you see a kettle over a, a braising pan in any one of those scenarios that you just laid out? If I were designed, you're saying as far as uh, who would use it over the other or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like what, what would you recommend um, if one it, braising over a, a kettle? 
personally, if I were designing a kitchen out, I would choose a braising pan any day over a kettle. I mean, just because I, I like the functionality and, and the the flexibility, right? A, a mm-hmm. kettle to me serves one purpose, and that's just boiling and simmering. Okay, so that's liquid almost exclusively. It's liquid content. Correct, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I'm a sucker for a soup, and I love pho or ramen. And I think those things are usually cooked in stockpot ranges. Uh, Why do you think they're not cooked in kettles? Yeah. Well, I would say just the, I mean, first and foremost is the first cost. I mean, installing a kettle with the the gas or electric and just the actual cost of the unit itself is probably, I mean, 12 to 15 times the cost of a, a standard stockpot range. And let's, let's stop and talk a little bit about steam kettle technology uh, because it's a steam jacketed kettle mm-hmm. and you have a double wall cylinder with liquid inside of it and if the liquid is heated from underneath or around the perimeter the steam rises and gives it an even heated container so uh, with less with with less hot spots right i mean that's why i if i had i mean if i had all the budget in the world and i i had a pho restaurant 100% 100% I'm putting in some sort of, you know, braising pan or kettle because I'm going to get a better product in a shorter amount of time. But a stockpot range is what people are used to using and they, they cost a, a fraction of, you know, of the kettles. So at the end of the day, you prefer one technology over another, but is there going to be an, an like a, a concern on chefs and food prep people that would prefer something gas over something less traditional such as a a, or tilting skillet like if it was electric i mean what what are your thoughts on that i mean some people would prefer to drive a ford mustang over a tesla right i mean they're both going to get to the same place and one is you know minimally faster than the other right so it's just all about adoption of new technology and the more and more that we get the technology out there, the more people are just going to get used to it. But, it, you know, it, it, at the, the crux of all of this is that a flame and cooking over flame is the original way that we made food, right? And people are just like, they're always in awe, ooh, flame or horsepower, more flame, more better food, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. And, but but truly, it just, it just takes education and, uh, and adoption of new technology. Where do you think that could... Where do you think that that would actually make an impact? Like at culinary schools, that like for example, somewhere you went to uh, to study the art of you know food preparation. Um, do you think it starts there, or does it start somewhere else? I mean, there's a lot of lines of thought from. I mean, my ignorance suggests that, that there's a lot of different ways to approach this, but it seems to me that, you know, going to the the folks that are, you know, they want this to be their career. They want to go to culinary schools. They want to be taught. Is that where it starts or somewhere else? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I, 
I don't know. It's a, that's a really, that's a tough one because I want to say it starts at culinary schools because that's where, you know, we're, we're teaching these, these young impressionable chefs on how to cook food. But at the end of the day, restaurants operate to make a profit, correct? And so the only way to make a profit is to make smart business decisions, which means lowest operating cost with the highest yield and yada, 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 right? So when I was in culinary school, I can't tell you what the heck I used to cook stuff on, right? I mean, we may have had a combi oven. I have no idea. But uh, it was just like, go over there and make that thing. Um, I, I, okay, done. Yes, chef. Yes. It needs more salt. I hear you. I get it. Right. Um, but, but it, 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 I just really wasn't paying attention to the equipment and I, and I feel like that's going to be standard. Now there are the, the few disciples and they're like, Oh man, I, the, the French top is the only way to cook the, you know, salmon in the pan. Right. But I, I don't have it. I don't have the right answer for you. I don't know. I, I just think it continued education uh, and working with, with the owner operators or the people that are writing the checks are going to be the best bet with, with implementing change. Mm-hmm. So in culinary school, I guess that the first piece of equipment that you get used to is just the range, right? Uh, the cutting board. Well, yeah. After <laughs> the prep work. And, uh, is it, uh... Slice that onion. That's right. <laughs> oh man, I we used to slice onions, and I would take saran wrap and make like a like a, a blindfold that you could see through to cut onions because my eyes hadn't adjusted to the tears yet. Um, but anyway, but yeah, no, I I think I mean culinary schools are hugely important, right? I mean that that's what they're using, it's what they get used to using. And if we completely look past that, then yes, they're going to continue to work on old ranges and learn old school cooking techniques. So it mm. is hugely important to work in that sector, but I don't think that's going to make, you know, the absolute change. I think it's, it, there's, there's a lot of tendrils of change in this, right? And we, we kind of have to, to get into every aspect of, of influencing the industry. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that man, you're making a lot of great points, Dashiell. Um, Dennis, I don't want to overstep on your toes here, but um, I I do want to ask one big question, and that is regarding uh, going back to you had mentioned the you know the 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 technology, the application, the process of preparing one dish over another. Um, using multiple different platforms of cooking preparation. Uh, what is your biggest, if, if you could have one piece of equipment to do the job that you are required to do as a chef, um, what would it be? Whether it's a fryer, a griddle, a plancha, a holding facility thing or like a holding cabinet or a refrigeration like what is the most important aspect of the entire process that's my big question uh, of of a kitchen the most i mean it, that is there's very there's a lot of layers right um and that's it's the <laughs> i always laugh because you know there, there's different ranges and everything right and by ranges i mean like price and cost and quality and all that right but like sure. if you went up to a chef and you said you know what's the difference between this refrigerator and that refrigerator they're like i don't know this one keeps my food just as cold as that one but us that have done the research and understand 
the the minutia in between you know like no way these are completely different and you know you all that food that you've invested inside that refrigerator, isn't it worth that $2,000 investment to keep it cold and safe versus this one that could shut down and break on you? And they're like, no, <laughs> I mean, some people get it right. right. But um, in the modern world, in the modern kitchen for me, and I'm truly saying this unbiased and I was going to say, you know, my answer, the number one piece of cooking technology that should be in everyone's kitchen is some sort of function of a combi oven. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you could truly do an entire menu out of a combi oven. And I'm not, you know, throwing out one brand versus the next. Just that the mixture of the convective heat with steam and the algorithms that that you know make the magic that gets the food. Uh, I, I personally think it's the single most important technology heading into the 21st century. Even over braising pans. And again, I, I'm with you on, we're not talking about a brand specific, but just generally speaking. Yeah. The it, combi, way, it, it way can more. Do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause there, there's a braising pan can't emulate what a combi can do. Right. But a combi can emulate a fryer, a grill, a steamer, a plancha, uh, you know, a baking oven, a roasting oven, a holding cabinet. I mean, you, you, I can go down a huge laundry list of everything that can be done and no other technology can quite, quite do that the same. Boom. Got Dennis on that one. Thank you. Thank you. Dash. No, Dash. He said it. So we've been over this multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys seen uh, there's a residential combi coming out? I think um, there's a bunch that are out. Yeah. Yeah. Where you refill a little reservoir with water. No, they, they have them now that are like on demand, like a commercial one and they, and they work fantastic. I mean, they're not, they're not a commercial oven, right? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, commercial is commercial and residential is residential. However, I've seen them work and they work darn well. I mean, I, I, I hope it hits the, the residential market because that too also drives the commercial market. I mean, it, in essence, what's an air fryer? It's just a, con, it's a convection oven, right? But it's, it, in that little tight space, I'm sure you can move more CFM because it's so small and it's, it's just toasting off stuff. Yeah. Don't, don't get me started on air fryers. I think it's a very uh, technically incorrect term to name an appliance. But, Agreed. Uh, I totally, yeah. totally agree. You can't cook anything. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that question is for you. Um, See, I don't know. It depends. I mean, what's that's where this food science stuff is coming into play. And it, to me, it's pretty remarkable. So are you guys familiar with, with uh, you know, blast chillers and, and them using the re- reverse technology of heat from the hot side of refrigeration? Mm-hmm. And yes, they're doing, they're doing cheesecakes and roasts. And I mean, it's, it's all about Delta cooking, right? So uh, increasing the temperature of the food product low and slow gives you a higher yield. Now, are you going to get the Maillard? No, you're not going to get the browning levels, but you're going to get a pretty fantastic, uh, juicy quality product with with uh, higher yield. What about sous vide? Mm-hmm. Isn't sous vide done at fairly low temperature? Yeah, yeah, you can. But the, the sous vide too is is 
you know, an untapped market. Obviously, it's been around for a long time and, you know, everyone's hearing about it, especially, again, residential market. Now people want to, everyone's a home chef making duck fat potatoes and whatnot. But um, in essence, you're just, you know, uh, cooking something in bag and you can do it in, in steam or water bath or whatever. But yes, like you said, it's it's a low temp process over a long duration of time so that you can, you know, kill any of the bacteria, microorganisms that make you sick. I got to ask what, what is, what is, would you say duck fat? Like, what is that? What is duck fat? Yeah. Literally, I mean, literally the I, best, I have no idea what that is. Substance to fry and ever know it's, you know, when you render like a duck breast and then you've got the layer of fat between the skin and the, and the breast itself. So no, rend- I, okay. I don't know, but <laughs> you, you'd render, you render out the duck fat. Just think of it as like animal butter. So it's literally re- rendered fat. We, we won't ask Dashiell about the duck press, but um, I do want to ask you about the reverse sear process mm-hmm. um, because I think traditionally we talked about the braising pan process where you sear it first and then cook it slow. What is reverse sear? So reverse sear is, you know, you've heard me say Maillard a couple times, right? But the, the Maillard reaction is the the caramelization of basically amino acids, right? And that's what, that's what gives you the, the browning of any sort of fruit to- product, whether it be toast, you know, proteins, potatoes, the sugars, just how they get nice and brown and crispy and, and beautiful, right? So reverse sear is cooking the food product itself without any browning and then finishing it with like a hot cast iron pan or a plancha or whatever. So you get that, that flash caramelization, but your food product is cooked consistently through top to bottom, left to right. So like a, like a reverse sear steak is hands down the best way to go. So what are the pros and cons of searing first versus doing the reverse? Um, I just, it's a different end product. I don't know. Like it's, it would, what, what's your desired finish, right? Like if I'm, if I've got a a barbecue and it's, it's, you know, 800 degrees over the flame, I'm going to probably try to reverse sear so that I'm not burning the outside of the food product before the inside gets cold. Right. But if I got a thinner food product, like let's say, you know, I've got a, a really thin piece of chicken breast. I'm typically not going to reverse sear that because it's going to cook so quickly. Okay. So, so it's but, more... but, but, but pros and cons, I would say there's pros and cons of both sides, right? A consistent, juicy, really nice product for really thick, like, you know, a tomahawk steak, a reverse sear is would be an amazing way to go. But then you could also cook it the other way. It just depends on, you know, what textures and, and finished product are you looking for? If you ask Salt Bay, he would probably tell you to to skip the reverse here and go all flame all the way. Yeah. Well, since you brought up salt, what about salt cooking um, and uh, salt blocks? What's that all about? So I would say salt. I mean, there's different ways of doing salt cooking. I, and I'm assuming you're referring to like uh, like doing like a fish packed in salt, like something like that. Well, what about cooking with salt only without um, without using temperature? Oh, oh, oh! You're talking about like the curing process. I gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's just a way of of curing food products and stabilizing the bacteria so you can't get sick from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean it's salumis and and prosciuttos and whatnot. It's a it's a super old technology 
I mean, I can't even call it technology, right? I think somebody probably stumbled upon it when they found their dead pig sitting in, <laughs> in a bath of salt. They're like, mm, yummy prosciutto. Um, <laughs> but, but my compressor on the fridge is down. Yes, exactly. it in the salt bath. But I, I think it I think it came through necessity, right? Salt cooking is was a way to preserve food products uh, when you didn't have refrigeration, you needed a long shelf life. And we've since learned how to tweak it and, and make it glorious. So what do you think, uh, Dash about, you know, maybe a little uh, tofu there? For those of us that don't eat, you know, pork products or meat in general. Is there a, a similar way of preparing food? Because from what I've understood, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that chefs like a challenge. And so if I go in there and I'm like, I don't eat that, I don't eat this, blah, blah, blah. Um, that gives them a little bit of a, hey, what can I do to make that palpable for that person? Yeah, absolutely. Very, very selfish request, by the way. <laughs> Did, were you going to remind us that you're vegan? <laughs> I, I don't have to, but I will. Well, I was going to say, that's the, how do you know that someone's vegan? Don't worry. They've already told you twice, right? Um, <laughs> I, hey, we're not all that big of assholes. <laughs> I'm or, just teasing. I, no. <laughs> but, but, but you know what? Vegan, vegan and, and vegetarian uh, cooking is like at the forefront of everything right now. Right. So I, I'm just coming off two pretty fun trade shows. The first one was, uh, it's called the world of flavors at CIA Copia, which was just literally chefs from around the world and big think tank talking about how do we do cool flavors together. Right. But what I saw was, you know, replicated over and over. I'm sorry, replicates maybe not the right word, but the, the topic of top of mind was vegan, right? And vegan substitutes because it's, I mean, it, it's really catching on. And then uh, I was also just at the California School Nutrition Association show and vegan meat alternative products were everywhere, which means it's getting a lot of notice, right? I mean, this families are driving this, this change and kids are wanting it, requesting it. Now it's getting a little more normalized. So to kind of answer your question, mm-hmm. You know, is it sacrilegious to uh, make vegan bacon? You know what? As a chef or whatever it is, right? As a chef these days, like sometimes I actually crave like the impossible burger with like the vegan diet cheese. Like, and again, no, no product placements, but uh, I really like there's something about the unique flavor profile that does it for me. So I, I think we're kind of entering this this new unfound territory of where vegan cuisine is going to take us. And I, I think it's fun. I think it's really cool. I don't I don't think you guys are paying the butts at all. In fact, at the World of Flavors conference, this chef I was working with is a food scientist out of Philadelphia. He's working with Impossible Foods and he actually made a vegan spam. So we did a spam masubi that we were serving people and the vegan spam was absolutely fantastic. I mean, just so, so, so good. Oh, that's cool, man. That's really cool. I like to hear that. And and not because, you know, it's, you know, the, the trend or whatever. It's, you know, I've been doing this situation with the diet for a long time um, since the 90s, early 90s. And, but what I've noticed is that I'll, I'll go to rural like locations in the Midwest and they have some of the best vegetarian and vegan friendly options that I've ever seen. So it's not like, 
you know, a lot of people assume like it's like, oh, it's, you know, in San Francisco or New York City or blah, 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 or Washington, D.C. or Seattle. Um, it's not the case. It's it's really all over the place. And no, it's, it's gone full mainstream. It really yeah. Has. Yeah. And it's it's exciting and it's fun. And honestly, I would say that a lot of people enjoy it whether or not they eat meat or not they, like they they're like oh this is new this is different it's pretty cool well think so. about this for me to put it in in you know food terms it wasn't that long ago that people saw raw tuna as like the antichrist right and now you can see a poke <laughs> poke bowl shop on every corner so we're we're kind of we're, yeah. we're seeing that change over now where people are really accepting these new flavors and what were foreign concepts and kind of adopting them into their everyday lives. And it, it's exciting. It's a, it's a new frontier for food, man. And I, I'm all for it. So, so do you think um, imitation meat is a trend or it's here to stay? Because there's a lot of delicious vegetarian food there without trying to taste like meat. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's here to stay. Right. I, I don't think necessarily the, the, fake meat is necessarily the way to go, but it's, it's kind of been like the gateway into other stuff. Right. Cause I mean, you're right. Like it's, you're never going to, to duplicate the, the flavor of a, of a mushroom. I mean, there's something about mushrooms that are to me, like, you know, godly, but the quote unquote fake meat is definitely just now seeing the light of day. And it, I mean, it, it's been around forever, right? People are using Satan tofu skin stuff forever, but now we're getting, you know, these, new varieties of hemoglobin. And if you go to, I think it's Missouri meats is a company that's like literally growing steaks in a lab. That's not technically real meat. Right. So I, I think we're, we we're on a brand new frontier. Mm -hmm. So yeah. to, to limit um, people's meat intake, um, what do you think about introducing burgers that are like 50% meat and 50% mushrooms or some kind of, um, tofu or seitan it seems unnecessary to me i think you just go all all the way or nothing mm -hmm. all or nothing yeah i would agree with that and, and and you have delicious mushrooms like chanterelles i mean i granted they are relatively expensive but they're so delicious if you can right. do something there i i don't know but i mean as a chef dash you you probably can make a an absolutely phenomenal uh dish using chanterelles i am um, a, i am a master mac and cheese chef <laughs> they call me they call me le craft no but le no craft. uh I, I worked at a restaurant we used to have a, a wild mushroom forager that came to the back door and would just sell his you know his pick of the day so it was pretty pretty cool and you have to come up how, how do you incorporate this into your menu and it was, it was a good time <laughs> well it forces you to get creative right it's like hey i got some i got some primo stuff coming in boom i'm gonna make the best meal of the day yep no doubt so it's... what other foods a vegetarian or vegan foods imitate the umami flavor of meat um besides mushrooms and tofu? Well, there's uh, koji, right? So it's a koji rice is this, you know, this new, it's not new, but, it, you know, becoming new to the mainstream, which tenderizes product meat products. And you, if you do koji syrups, 
you can get a really crazy savory umami flavor. Um, you know, there's, there's different amino acids, there's soy based products. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways of achieving it. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about Koji? I'm not familiar with it. So Koji rice is a rice that started in Japan and, and I don't know the history of it. I can't, I can't speak to it too, uh, in a, too much of an educated manner, but, uh, in essence it ferments and it, it ferments the product that you put it around and it tenderizes and it adds a savory flavor. So there's, there's, uh, some chefs now they're doing, you know, really interesting Koji rubs and things like they'll literally marinate a fish for over two weeks in a, in like a Koji syrup or Koji dust and it, it preserves it like almost like a pickle fermentation, but it adds like different textures and, and, and flavors. So when it comes to fish, I mean, you're looking at a fish that normally after two days, you're like, Ugh, get this thing out of here. But literally you're pushing it to the brink at two, three, four week fermentations. And then you're grilling it like you would a fresh fish. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. Is this similar to fermented corn uh, that's sometimes used in some of the like like we like wilacoche? Yeah, no, little little different than wilacoche. Wilacoche is just a natural fermentation that grows on the corn, and it's a fungus that you cook. Now this this is a little different. Well, I don't think many people would like the term fungus associated with their <laughs> with their diet. <laughs> a little fun with the fungus. That's hey, awesome. what's 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 fun without the Gus? <laughs> True that. I know we're coming up on a solid hour almost, so I don't want to delay things too much. Um, but final thoughts, Dennis uh, Dash. What are you guys thinking? The the Double D guys here. Uh, you have extreme experiences in both areas. And I'd love to hear final thoughts from both of you. Dennis, you can go first. I'll wait. I'll, I'll follow suit so I can give the, the grand exit. <laughs> uh, I'm what just a gentleman. We figured out the mystery of um, braising pans and tilt skillets and which one's used for what. Because uh, to me, um, I, I sometimes see those behemoth appliances in the back of the kitchen. Um, not not being used much, but I think naturally you were explaining about versatility and with the new um, types of braising pans, how they can be more more universal and things could be cooked in it more. Yeah, for sure. And I, I guess so. I guess my closing thoughts would be, I mean, we we really just hit the tip of the iceberg here, right? I mean, there there's so much to be uh, unfolded and. As it pertains to new modern cooking technologies, I mean, there's there there's so much to learn, and really, the new chefs are the ones that are driving the change, right? Because it, classic supply and demand. If there's no demand, where's there's no point for supply, right? So these new chefs that are coming up with these really uh, bizarre and cool cooking technologies and and ways of applying you know cooking techniques in the new technology is making us better at our job and. I just, it, it's fun to watch. Um, but don't sleep on the combi. Combi oven is the way of the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank you, Dashiell, so much for, for joining us. Um, I love the fact that you hit on the point that we we're just tipping on the tip of the iceberg there. 
the reason being is because there is so much more to discuss and I don't feel like everyone understands that until you're fully vested in the industry. And then you're like, Oh yeah, we got a lot more to talk about. So that's really cool. Thank you for echoing that. Dashiell. Um, mm-hmm. That's, I think you're, you're, you hit that spot on. And bring me back. You know, I like to talk, obviously. <laughs> We, we know. Maybe, maybe we'll have you in for a CV episode. That sounds maybe, pretty cool. Maybe we could do we could do a live episode too sometime. We could actually fry some apple pies in person. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds good. Let's all meet up in uh, I don't know Dash. Where are you at, man? You're in the Bay I'm Area. In, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in the South Bay. Okay, so I'm in Sac. Dennis is down south. We can all meet up. We're all in the same state. Let's make it make it happen. (laughs) For sure. Well, guys, this was a great episode. We're going to wrap it up with Fried Friday. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Happy Fried. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thanks, Dash.